This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio Cars. Like most of you, I drive a car or a truck. Well, occasionally, I need tires or just a simple plug or patch. Well, my friends down at Just Tires is the place to go when that need arises. Give them a call at 727-585-9271. They have a convenient location right at 1645 Clearwater Largo Road. You can't miss them. So for all your tire needs, cars, trucks, trailers, new, used, or just a repair, give Just Tires a call. 727-585-9271. Oh, yeah, and be sure and check out their website, JustTires.net. Do you ever feel the need for speed? Well, experience the thrill of indoor karting at Tampa Bay Grand Prix, located at 12350 Automobile Boulevard in Clearwater. Call 727-527-8464. They have state-of-the-art electric carts racing around a quarter-mile road circuit. Bring your family, friends, and teammates for some speed, fun, and competition at Tampa Bay Grand Prix Indoor Karting Facility. Call 727-527-8464. Visit their website at tampabaygp.com. Under the bridge, by the river. How did you know it was an ambush? Whenever there's any doubt, there is no doubt. That's the first thing they teach you. Who taught you? I don't remember. That's the second thing they teach you. All good things come to those who wait. What are you going to do to me? Let's just be calm. One more moment. One more moment. Why? Why? Oh, you know why. Oh, you don't want to do that. You can't. Okay, listeners, welcome, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. How you doing, Bill? Is this thing on? Yeah. You got it queued up in there? Yep. Hey, anybody there? Hello? Hello? Anyway, yeah, hey, I hope you guys tuned into our show last week, because we had the one and only Uncle Ted, as in Ted Nugent, on our radio show last week. As a matter of fact... He will be here Monday in concert at Ruth Eckerd Hall. So 
Hurry and scurry to get your tickets at RuthEckertHall.com. At 7.30 is when the show starts, August 6, 2012. Man, I'll tell you what. Go to our podcast and check out the Ted Nugent interview. It was a great show. We got some other big names we're working on, okay? Won't let the cat out of the bag just yet, but uh, they're pretty cool people and very well known. Not only just car guys, but hey, we're working on some rock and rollers, too, that are into cars. So, you know me, I don't like to cut my chickies before they're hatched. But anyway, so Bill, what do we got queued up tonight on the phonograph? This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, 
or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Just say, show me the Carfax. All right, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, Bill, you still hiding back there? (laughs) Bill, Bill Hummer, you're the next contestant on Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Come on down. Oh, yeah. Hey, Bill, guess what? And that goes for anybody and everybody out there. We just told you that Ted Nugent's coming in concert. If you want a Ted Nugent for President bumper sticker or Spirit of the Wild, give us a call here at the studio, 727-441-3000. 727-441-3000. And we will mail you a Ted Nugent for President bumper sticker or any other pre- Ted Nugent bumper sticker that we have. Again, 727-441-3000. Be the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, or 10th caller. Makes no difference to us. we got plenty of bumper stickers. I don't know if you guys are... Uh, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, what you should do, you should run and turn on your computers. Go to Tantalk1340.com and you can check out this stunning, amazing... We finally have it here. Our banner, our official Nostalgic Radio and Cars banners. It's behind me. It's perfect. It fits... <laughs> Beep, beep. Okay. It fits perfectly over the back window, which is six feet by three feet. It's a stunning job. And I want to thank my good friend, Doug, at the sign shop. Yay! So, if you need a banner, a sign, a decal, or anything of the nature, give Dougie a call at the sign shop on Madeira Beach. That's 727-392-4852. 727-392-4852. You know, this is starting to sound more and more like, The Price is Right! <laughs> hey, we got a lot more sound of it. And we have another special guest with us this evening. You guys may recognize this familiar person here. It is Boneyard Bob. Well, anyway, Boneyard Bob, if you guys used to walk into my shop down in Pinellas Park back in the good old days when we had the one and only Nostalgic Auto down there. But anyway, we had Boneyard Bob used to sit out there in front of our showroom. And uh, <laughs> anyway, he's in the, sitting in the studio with actually standing because he's just a mannequin. And he's dressed the way I used to, which is a torn set of blue jeans, a pair of wore-out loafers, a flannel shirt, and occasionally a baseball cap. So anyway, Boneyard Bob, he doesn't say much. He just kind of hangs around. Anyway, okay, what else we got going on, too? Oh, yeah, hey, we have a special guest for you this evening, so everybody stay tuned. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. (laughs) 
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, Call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. This is Bill Warner of the Amelia Island Concord Delegates, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And it's just about time to introduce our special guest for the evening. Actually, welcome back, our special guest for the evening. You may remember him. I'm sure you've seen his face. He's a very familiar guy, got a very familiar voice. He's on speed. He does a lot of F1 coverage. You'll probably recognize him from Barrett-Jackson. He does the uh, live commentating on the uh, Barrett-Jackson auction scene. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Bob Varsha. Bob, are you there? I am, Robert. Good to be back with you. How you doing? I'm doing just fine, thanks. So, since you're the expert on Formula One, why don't you bring us up to speed? Since I just played that little clip uh, from the, the movie trailer for uh, Senna, mm-hmm. um, tell us a little bit about the what's going on in F1 this year, since we're halfway through the season, right? Well, we are, and it's a great time to, uh, to take stock of the first ten races of the season. Uh, I think... Just about everybody, but the most fervent Ferrari fan would have to tell you he didn't expect Fernando Alonso to be leading the championship at the midway point of the season, but there he is. And it's uh, it's fun to watch, frankly. Alonso uh, is at the height of his powers right now and uh, looking very much like a three-time world champion. But we've got another ten races to go, so we'll have to wait and see. Um, I'm also struck by the lack of consistency among some of the other formerly front-running teams. Uh, Red Bull Racing, the two-time defending constructors champions, have been hurt by the rules changes that took away some of their technical advantages during the offseason. But still, they won three of the first two races of, of the first ten races of the season, and they remain the constructors champions lead right now. But um, McLaren has been up and down. Lewis Hamilton and Jensen Button can't seem to run at the front the same races. The same for Mercedes, where. Nico Rosberg won the Chinese Grand Prix at Shanghai, and Michael Schumacher has threatened to win for the first time since his return from retirement, but it hasn't happened yet. Lotus has had a lot of problems with uh, mechanical issues and crashing, and the Sauber team got all the way to the podium in the second race of the season in Malaysia, but hasn't been able to duplicate that with their two young drivers. So, yeah, there's been a, a lot to talk about. Uh, certainly the, the way the races have unfolded with seven different drivers winning in the first 10-race stretch, it's, it's been plenty exciting and unpredictable, which I'm sure is nerve-wracking for the teams, but it's great fun for those of us who stand by and watch. Michael Schumacher, now is he one of the older drivers competing again? Absolutely. Michael is approaching his 44th birthday, and uh, it's been a long time since a driver scored at that age, but he remains... Well, he remains a pioneer on the fitness side of Formula One driving, uh, as Tiger Woods is to professional golf. I mean, he showed up on the scene with an amazing fitness regimen that everybody else has sort of had to rise to the challenge of. And um, so Michael um, races like a man half his age, which is good, because that's exactly what he's doing out there. Would you say his the car's kind of holding him back a little bit, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Um, you know, Formula One technology, as you know, Robert, rapidly evolves. And with technical changes to the regulations year upon year, the driver, the engineers, I should say, are having to come up with new ideas and basically reinvent the wheel just about every year. So with Michael having retired after the 2006 season and being out of that crucible for three years, he had an awful lot of catching up to do when he returned to the sport three seasons ago. Um, And since that time, the brand of tire that he rode to many of his 91 victories and seven world championships of Bridgestone tire is no longer there. And he's having to deal with the new fast degrading Pirelli rubber. And and it's been a struggle, which, uh, which some people seem to lament. But I think it's just a further indication of how difficult Formula One is. And Michael, for his part, says he's enjoying himself. It's widely expected he will do a new contract with the Mercedes team at season's end, and who knows, he may race till he's 50. Well, that'd be great. So, uh, Well, let me ask you this. I mean, would it be fair to say, because you kind of indicated this a second ago, is that the technology from 2006, 2007, till let's say, you know, Michael getting back in the the driver's seat here in 2011, 2012, Mm -hmm. um, has it really changed that much that would make that much of an impact on a seasoned driver? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Michael came, <clears throat> excuse me, back in 2010, and, and the cars had changed remarkably, particularly from an aerodynamic perspective. Uh, he was also, uh, well, I mean, you just look at his team. I mean, he was with the Mercedes team, which was previously the Braun team, and in 2009, they carried Jensen Button to the World Championship, and yet in 2010, 
when Mercedes bought up the team and turned it into the Mercedes factory operation, uh, they basically couldn't get out of their own way. So, you know, that was purely because of a technical regulation change specifically focused on what was known as the double diffuser, an aerodynamic trick at the back of the car that provides extra downforce and allows the cars to corner much faster. All of the speed and all of the difference between cars in Formula One and probably other forms of motorsports, at least anything other than straight line racing, is uh, is is in the corners. That's where you you separate the great cars from the not-so-great ones. And it's something that Mercedes has struggled with. So they had that problem in 2010. They lost the double diffuser. In 2011, they went for a long wheelbase car that did not work at all for them. And uh, and this year, they're having trouble dealing with the fast-degrading Pirellis. They need more downforce around the car. So, you know, it's fortunes of war. Everybody has to... Uh, has to build and design their own car in Formula One. So sometimes the mighty can fall in the space of one off-season. The uh, tire issue, is that a problem for all the teams, though? Absolutely. It's the same for everyone. Okay. Now, and, and there's a large misconception about this. Pirelli was specifically tasked by Formula One under their sole supplier contract to come up with tires that made tire degradation more common, which meant that tire strategy was more important. There were more pit stops, uh, more difference in speed among cars, and thereby a greater show, more overtaking, that sort of thing. I would have to say it succeeded extraordinarily, um, but that does, as I say, create headaches for the teams because they really have to hit the bullseye on car setup in order to get these fast-degrading tires into the proper operating temperature window. And, and frankly, it's very tough, even for seasoned drivers like Michael, whose Mercedes team is run by Ross Braun, who was the technical director at Ferrari when Michael won five of his seven world championships. So there's no dearth of expertise on that team. It's just a matter of accumulating the data and analyzing it effectively. Now, um, seven championships is what he won. Now, is there anybody else that's won that many, or is he still like the uh, reigning champion there on, as far as the uh, accumulation? No, of no. It? No, no one approaches Michael in championships or race victories. He basically is the leader in just about every performance category in Formula One, laps, led, points, all that sort of thing. Um, Juan Manuel Fangio, back in the 50s, won five championships. Alain Prost won four the last one coming in uh, 1993. And, um, Senna had and, what? He had three or four, didn't he? Well, there's several drafts. Senna had three. Nelson Piquet had three. Jack Brabham had three. Jackie Stewart had three. So there's a number of three-time champions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, two and one. But uh, no, no one approaches Michael in the numbers department. What do you think made him enter back into the racing scene? I think he just uh, never lost the bug, frankly. Uh, I think his departure in 2006 was partly the result of palace intrigue at Ferrari. I think it was decided for Michael that he was closer to the end of his career than the beginning, and they had Kimi Raikkonen on a pre-contract, if you'll call it that. They, They knew Kimi wanted to come to Ferrari, and they wanted to have him, and he was the younger man. And uh, so they they basically ushered Michael out. I'll never forget at the final race of the year in Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, excuse me, in Monza at the Italian Grand Prix around Labor Day, Ferrari issued a press release announcing Michael's retirement while he was still out on the racetrack competing in the race. They didn't even allow Michael to come before the press and announce that he was going to leave at the end of the year. Uh, it, was, it was all very extraordinary, very awkward. And um, and frankly, I don't think uh, Michael has forgiven Ferrari for treating him that way. But I, ne- I think he never lost the fire and wanted to come back. And um, and in 2010, he did, and he's still enjoying himself. Now, his brother... Uh, Ralph. Ralph, right. He went mm-hmm. to Touring Car, didn't he, or something? Yes, he did. He went to the DTM, the German Touring Car Championship, okay. where he still races. And how's he doing there? Pretty good? No, no, not really. He has, I think he has won a race, but uh, Ralph is a hard guy to discuss. He was not everybody's favorite individual, it must be said, up and down the pit lane in Formula One. So there's a certain amount of snickering about Ralph's fortunes since. Uh, he is racing a year-old Mercedes, I believe, in the in the DTM and, and moving along and 
occupying his time, but little more than that, really. Ralph's kind of irrelevant on the uh, on the international racing stage. Now, his uh, back to Michael. Now, does he did he ever consider going into another form of racing besides um, F one or? Is, I mean, did he ever consider, let's say, uh, you know, like racing Le Mans, the 24-hour Le Mans GT cars, or in uh, tour, or the touring cars like the Deutsche? Uh, Actually, Michael came up through the Mercedes Junior program uh, in sports cars. He raced with uh, with the Mercedes team, and um, gosh, one of the sports cars that he raced, I'm pretty sure he raced at Le Mans, although he's not a fan of the race, but if he did, he only did it once. Um He's, he's not a big fan of endurance racing. He claims to have no interest in any other form of motorsport other than Formula One, although he has been known to climb on a motorcycle and almost hurt himself very badly during his retirement when he decided to jump into a few local superbike races in his native Germany. and came off a couple of times and, and hurt himself. But be that as it may, uh, Michael says it's Formula One or nothing for him, and I think he'll probably stick to that. Speaking of uh, superbike races, have you covered uh, bike races? I have. I spent, during my ESPN tenure, I spent quite a few years covering motorcycle racing. Do you get to cover any of that kind of uh, racing nowadays, any motorcycle racing? No. Basically, between the, the events I do, Formula One and Barrett-Jackson and some of the Rolex Grand Am endurance events and Le Mans, um, I really don't have uh, the time for that. Uh, we do the full season at speed, uh, MotoGP, uh, World Superbike, and AMA. So there's so much motorcycle racing out there, just as there's so much NASCAR out there, that we have teams of people who devote themselves to that. It would be a scheduling nightmare if I were try to jump in there. Mm-hmm. Although I have done uh, the, the odd MotoGP race um, when needed on an emergency basis in the last couple of seasons, but it's not something I do regularly. What did you think of Hockenheim and the results of that race? I thought it was a terrific race, a lot of fun. Of course, it was a a manic weekend since we had heavy rains on Friday and Saturday. And like the British Grand Prix before it at Silverstone, race day turned out to be a lovely day. And uh, and the race uh, was interesting, even though Fernando Alonso, or perhaps because Fernando Alonso dominated the race itself, leading all of the 67 laps, he, in qualifying on Saturday, when the track was so wet, he didn't even want to go out. When he did go out, he, he, he kind of strapped himself in and put his right foot down. And his pole lap, which we saw during our speed coverage of qualifying, was just awesome to watch because he went off the track three times. I mean, he was sideways everywhere, as was just about everybody else. But in the end, he had the, uh, the fastest time by seven-tenths of a second over Sebastian Vettel. So it was a pole well-earned. And in the race on Sunday in the dry, I mean, he was simply checked out. When you guys, um, now, I, I, I guess some of our listeners may know, because we talked about this the last time you were on the air, um, you actually watch the show and do the commentating from Charlotte, correct, for all the F1 races? That's correct, from okay. our studios in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, for the Montreal race that was a month or so ago, or a month and a half ago, do you, June, yeah. do you go on location for Montreal since it's here in North America, or do you also do that cover that show from uh, Charlotte? No, we cover that just like all the other races from the studio. Will Buxton, our pit man, is on site, but uh, David Hobbs, Steve Matchett, and I are all in the studio in Charlotte just calling it live off a satellite feed, watching the same pictures you are at home. Okay. Now, what about the uh, up-and-coming U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, Texas, on the brand-new track? Are you going to be there on location for that or, again, in Charlotte? Yes, we will be on location for the U.S. Grand Prix. We went to the uh, Indianapolis U.S. Grand Prix when they they were in effect from, oh, I guess, 01 to 07, um, or maybe 2000 to 07. But, yes, we did go to the American round of the championship, and we will do that again in Austin and hopefully uh, in New Jersey beginning next year. Oh, there's a race in New Jersey next year? That's right. June of next year, they're going to race actually on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River on a spectacular street circuit starting down at river level. The start-finish line will be directly across from 54th Street in Manhattan. Uh, They will climb the New Jersey Palisades and then rocket back down to, uh, to river level uh, track about three miles in length. I forget how many corners, about 20 or so. 
And uh, we'll have the Manhattan skyline as a backdrop, and it should be spectacular. We're really looking forward to it. Wow, that sounds exciting. That's going to be a first, isn't it, for New York, New Jersey? Absolutely, yep. Now, is this going to be a regular schedule, or is this the United States Grand Prix just moving around from circuit to circuit? No, both races will run uh, in parallel. Uh, The race in Austin, Texas, is known as the Grand Prix of the Americas. Okay. And the New Jersey race will be the Grand Prix America, singular. Grand Prix of America, I should say. Wow, that's great that we got Grand Prix racing coming back to the United States like that, to that, uh, to that extent. Absolutely, brother. Well, let me ask you a question now. Since it's going to be in New York, New Jersey, is uh, Donald Trump involved in that, any of the promotional under it? Cause I, I... Dear Lord, I hope not. Okay. Um, well, no, the... he is not. No, okay. he is not. There, there are some very savvy businessmen involved. Leo Hendry, who uh, who built up the Yes Network, the Yankees Nets Network in New York. He's a very successful businessman and, and a racer in his day. I think he's retired from it now, but... He has raced at Le Mans, so he's very much a fan of the sport. He is working with the Wheeler family. Humpy Wheeler, of course, for many years was the promoter par excellence at Charlotte Motor Speedway. His daughter, Patty, and son, Tripp, are involved. And it's uh, they're building up quite an organization. Tom Cotter, longtime motorsports PR professional, mm-hmm. is the president of the organization. It's going to be based at the Port Imperial Complex. And this is one of the interesting facets of this race. The entire thing takes place on the New Jersey side. The New Jersey governments of Weehawken and West New York, Governor Christie of New Jersey, everything has taken place in New Jersey, and yet New York is getting all the headlines and all the publicity, even though nothing's happening in New York other than uh, a few parties and uh, a lot of us staying on the Manhattan side of the Hudson River. But the race itself is totally New Jersey-based, and and that could be a pretty cool thing, too. Hopefully we'll get Bruce Springsteen and somebody like that. Oh, yeah, Bon Jovi. He's... Bon Jovi, absolutely. Okay, well, now, wait a minute. Are you going to be able to cover that one live, or are you going to be trapped in uh, Charlotte? Well, I certainly hope we'll be doing it live. It's, okay. it's sort of an unofficial policy that we go to the U.S. rounds of the championship simply to wave the flag, because we are technically the host broadcasters, and so uh, we certainly you know, want to be there on, uh, on the scene. Well, that sounds exciting. That Really, that's great news. Certainly hope so. Uh, let me ask you a question now. Um, there's been a, in, well, in uh, the Mideast now, there's been a couple tracks that have uh, manifested themselves or appeared here in the last uh, five uh-huh. years or so. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. I mean, you've got the one in uh, Dubai, and then there's um, right. another one over there someplace. I'm tr- not quite sure. you Probably more familiar with that than I am. Well, the only true Middle Eastern track is Abu Dhabi in the United okay. Arab Emirates. Okay. Dubai, if you will. Um, yes, and that's an absolutely spectacular facility, state-of-the-art. Uh, perhaps a little too antiseptic for some, but fabulous architecture surrounds it. Um, and there are sight lines like you wouldn't believe. It's really the uh, one of the... One of the most beautiful of new generations of tracks designed by Hermann Tilke and Associates. Tilke is a German engineering firm, and they are pretty much the in-house designers of Formula One racing facilities. Um, I suppose the nearest track to the Middle East would be India. India, right, that's it. The new track in Delhi, which uh, which just opened last year. So uh, so those are the representatives of that part of the world. And those tracks, they're this, uh, this fall, and they're only a week apart, right? Something like that? Um, you know, I haven't looked at the schedule. They are pretty close together, yes. Now, have, yeah, you, had the, the fall. have you had the opportunity to visit um, the track in Dubai or India? I have not. No, I haven't been to either of them. Having said that, I mean, India just ran last year, okay. and Dubai has only seen a couple of runnings, so they are they are very, very young racetracks. But, no, I haven't had the opportunity to visit them personally. Well, you... Would it be fair to say that those tracks, because you kind of refer to the one in uh, Dubai as mm-hmm. antiseptic, in other words, extremely you know meticulous and clean and you know brand new and state of the art? How's right. that track from your perspective compared to the track that they're building in Austin, Texas? Because that's a brand new track too. And if you want to elaborate on that one a little bit about some of the other uh, venues that are going to take place there in Texas, well, uh, there are a number of differences. The the track in Abu Dhabi, <clears throat> excuse me, is built on land reclaimed from the sea. It's basically a man-made island structure. And as I say, I mean, they've lavished 
God knows how many millions of dollars on the facility, and it's pretty to look at and extremely safe, but it's, as I say, it's, uh, it, it's not terribly interesting in its way. Probably the most distinctive feature of it is the fact that the pit exit goes through a tunnel underneath the racetrack and pops up on the other side where the cars can enter the track more safely. Uh, but that tunnel itself is, is pretty wild and crazy stuff. Um, by contrast, the track coming out of the ground in Austin, Texas, is a natural terrain circuit using the undulations of the Texas countryside southeast of the city of Austin. And, uh, and it's a nice blending uh, into that terrain. For example, the front straightaway, the start-finish straightaway, rockets uphill to a very tight left-hand corner at the top of the hill. So the drivers are going to be facing a tremendous challenge to figure out their braking and their turning on what is essentially almost a blind corner and a very slow one after a very fast straightaway. So there's going to be a lot of action up there. And it's also quite a long circuit, so there's lots of corners, some of which pay tribute to some of the other great corners around the world. There's, there's a right-hander that is very much like the, the four apex turn nine at uh, the Istanbul Raceway in Turkey that, unfortunately, Formula One isn't visiting currently. And so that's going to be a pretty exciting corner. There's also a corner that pays tribute to Eau Rouge at the legendary Spa-Francorchamps circuit in Belgium. So there's going to be a lot to look at. Again, the sight lines should be terrific, and they're placing their new grandstands there very carefully to make sure they offer the fans as much of an exposure to the vista of the entire track as they can. It's a big track, but there's almost a bowl effect to it so that you can see the cars for quite a distance. Yeah, you had mentioned earlier, too, that they're going to have uh, concert venues there and motocross racing or um, um, uh, what's what I'm thinking of, you know, Grand Prix motorcycle racing there, too. They're planning motorcycle racing. There is a V8 Australian supercar event. First oh, time right. the Australians have come to the United States, so that'll be great to see. There's going to be a uh, American Le Mans series car, the kind of cars that race at the 24 hours of Le Mans every year. They're going to race there. Uh, there was to be a MotoGP race there, but we the that contract seems to have gone away during the piece of litigation of falling out between the track co-founders. I believe that situation has now been settled and squared away, but we've heard nothing more about whether MotoGP is in fact going to come. I suspect they will, because there are three or four Americans racing in MotoGP right now. But be that as it may, um, IndyCar is taking a look at Austin. And as you say, they're going to have concert venues out there, educational facilities and convention facilities. I think they're very wisely designing the track to be a multifaceted facility where you can have all sorts of racing and all sorts of other events because uh, running a racetrack is a very tough way to uh, to run a business, to make money. And so they're, uh, they're casting their net wide. Of course, Austin, Texas is famed throughout the world as a music town with Austin City Limits. Uh, the 6th Street watering hole area has about 90 bars on it, and on any given night, most of them have live music. So it's a really exciting town. I think everybody who goes for that race in November is going to have a great time. Um, and, you know, we wish everybody well with the racetrack called Circuit of the Americas. Well, that sounds exciting, too. And not to mention mm-hmm. uh, Austin, Texas. Isn't it uh, College Town, SMU? Southern oh, Island? yeah. No, UT. Hush your mouth. <laughs> University of Texas Longhorn. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that of Austin. Yeah. It's, uh, that's why 6th Street is so interesting with all those bars and restaurants, because down at the Texas University of Texas end of it, yeah, they're college-type bars, kind of rough around the edges. Then you go down to the far end, and I mean literally a mile and a half away. 6th Street is quite long. There are some upscale, trendier sorts of spots, so you can take your pick and uh, and bar hop all night long. Hmm. Interesting. Hey, let's jump over to, uh, we were talking earlier about um, some of the upcoming uh, movies that are coming out. I mean, we, I did uh-huh. a little skit on Senna, and then uh, you were mentioning a movie called Rush, and that's a right. Ron Howard movie. Tell us a little bit, uh, or tell us what you know about that. That's new to me, too. Well, uh, we were all terribly excited when Ron Howard announced uh, early this year that he was going to do a film based on the 1976 Formula One World Championship battle between Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. Uh, fans of Formula One know 76 is when Lauda had his terrifying accident at the Nürburgring during the German Grand Prix, suffered terrible burns, uh, and yet 
bravely climbed back into his race car six weeks later, bleeding through his bandages in order to stay in the hunt for the world championship for Ferrari. And the whole season came down to the very last race of the year at the Mount Fuji circuit in Japan, where rain uh, practically washed out the race. But the race was held, and I won't give away the ending, although you could look it up. Um, But we're all excited that Ron Howard, as successful as he is, is producing a movie that he himself says won't have met his expectations if it doesn't leave race fans feeling their sport was fairly treated. Race fans are notorious for for being very picky when it comes to the way racing is depicted on the silver screen. And uh, frankly, recent efforts have not achieved the sort of verisimilitude that race fans would like to see. But we all expect Rush to do that. By contrast, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, too, or interesting, rather. Racing fans and their perception of a movie versus, let's say, a baseball fan or a football fan based on attempts to try to make the movie seem somewhat real. Is there a difference in perspective among car people versus ball sports? Because you've been involved with other sports as well, so you can put a little Uh different perspective on it. Well, I think every fan, if you're passionate about your sport, you have certain standards that you expect to be to be met. Um, and I think that's true maybe of everybody who, who knows the story a movie is based on very well. And you might find little nits to pick. For example, I just finished reading Scott Bird's biography of Charles Lindbergh, and there was a famous movie made called Spirit of St. Louis in which Jimmy Stewart played Charles Lindbergh. That was all well and good, and Stewart did a great job in the role, but uh, uh, you know, a stickler for verisimilitude would suggest that Charles Lindbergh flew solo across the Atlantic in his mid-20s while Jimmy Stewart was in his 40s when he played the role. Okay. <clears throat> but maybe we're getting you know too, uh, too nitpicky there. But I think anybody, a baseball fan watching Bull Durham or Pride of the Yankees or or, you know, a, a football fan watching, uh, you know, the, the, whatever, the, the Brian Piccolo, Gale Sears story. Uh, you know, you, you, you have certain things that you expect to see when it comes to the actual action of a sport. And there are certain racing movies that people point to as being classics, such as uh, Grand Prix by John Frankenheimer, and Le Mans, which was done by uh, Steve McQueen, um, those sorts of movies, as opposed to thing, uh, movies that, that really did not hit that bullseye, including Sylvester Stallone's movie Driven, mm-hmm. which was actually supposed to be a Formula One movie. Fans uh, from that era will remember Sylvester Stallone was not happy with Bernie Ecclestone, who runs Formula One. He felt he'd been stabbed in the back. So he tried to turn it into a champ car movie um, with success that I'll leave up to the to the viewers to judge okay. Days of Thunder, for example, you know, was that a real depiction of what stock car racing is like when uh, the Tom Cruise character wins the Daytona 500 at the end of the movie and then walks over and has a quiet chat on the pit wall with his crew chief? I don't think so. But <laughs> nevertheless, you're not going to please everybody, and uh, we're just all looking forward to seeing what uh, Ron Howard's going to come up with because, frankly, there are a number of other motorsports-themed movies said to be in development, as they say, out in Hollywood. And I think they're probably waiting to see how Rush does um, in order to decide whether or not they want to invest in trying to make a really good racing movie. We've got about two minutes left, or three minutes. Um, Senna, sure. how do you think they depicted Ayrton uh, Senna and his movie and the, and, and the story they did about him? I was very happy with the way Manish Pandey and the other people that made that movie um, handled it. Uh, They had just an unbelievable amount of material to go through. Uh, But having said that, they couldn't have done it without the the help and support of the Senna family, who gave them access to home movies and home videos and and a lot of very valuable insider material. Uh, We all knew that before the movie came out, and so we expected that perhaps the movie would be told from the slant of the Senna family. But the finished product, I think, was very even-handed and uh, and I thought told a great story. Uh, in fact, I think I saw a headline today that Senna is coming to television shortly here in the United States. So 
Oh, really? I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I think it's going to be on ESPN too. Now, were you in bro- um, you were broadcasting back when he was still alive and racing, weren't yes, you? Yes, I was. Mm-hmm. Did you? Yeah, if get- you listen closely, you can actually hear my voice during one of the sequences in uh, Suzuka, Japan, when Senna deliberately drove his old rival and teammate Alan Prost off the road in order to clinch the world championship. You hear you hear several announcers in different languages describing the scene. And you hear my voice and that of my colleague David Hobbs for, oh, I think about three or four seconds, certainly enough to uh, to help me with the, the folks at the uh, union. <laughs> no residuals for my role, but I'm proud to have been a part of it. And, and my colleague, John Bisignano, who is one of the key figures in the film, was our pit reporter when David and I were covering Formula One back in the early 90s, so... The um, when did, what year did you start um, getting involved in? Uh, was it early nineties, wasn't it, when you started doing uh, uh, broadcasting and covering races and stuff? Well, I started broadcasting back in the early eighties, actually okay. at Turner Broadcasting here in my hometown of Atlanta. Uh, one thing led to another, and I began working for a, uh, a, a an independent production company called World Sports Enterprises, and then moved on to ESPN, and then on to what is now Speed. Uh, my first Formula One race was 1987, but it wasn't until 89 that I, I picked up the series full-time um, and uh, been with it on and off ever since. Wow. Well, now, um, we're just about out of time, but here's what I'd like to do, Bob. I'd love to have you back after the United States Grand Prix so you can give us a play-by-play and, you know, a real sense of what that track was like and the uh, atmosphere and the enthusiasm and the drivers and the people and the cars. And uh, I'd love to hear about that. So uh, you will be there at that particular race, right, live? That's right. Okay. Absolutely. Well, that's super. Um, so what's your next big uh, deal that you got here? What's the next ALMM? ALM, AL, God, I keep saying that wrong. <laughs> ALMS race that you're going to be doing. Uh, well, I won't be. You know, they they now appear on another network. So oh, do they? since they're not on speed, I don't I don't see those boys except at Lamar. Uh boys and girls, I should say. Okay. Um, you know, my next gig is uh, wait through August and then be ready to uh, pick up the Formula One season with Spa Frankershaw the first weekend in September, which I believe is the second. Uh, followed immediately by one of my other favorite race tracks, uh, Monza in Italy. And, uh, and away we'll go. And I have Barrett Jackson in September in Las Vegas. And uh, before you know it, it'll be 2013. Wow. All right. Well, Bob, I want to thank you for coming on the show. My guest this evening was Bob Varsha from Speed. So uh, be sure to look for him on Speed covering the F1 races and the upcoming. We didn't even get a chance to do that, the uh, Barrett Jackson race or uh, Barrett Jackson auction <laughs> here. But anyway, Bob, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we will definitely be in touch. And, of course, we'll see you then after the United States Grand Prix uh, in November. That's November 16th through the 18th. Meantime, everybody else, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. We'll see you next week. <laughs>